T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome to the show. Uh, you guys uh, out there, many of you already know I'm a psychologist. Um, I'm rather an outlier psychologist, renegade psychologist. But uh, the topic of today's opening monologue has to do with psychology. And the question that we begin with today is, what is a Christian psychologist? Or more accurately, perhaps, how can a Christian be a psychologist? First, the answer, and then the explanation. The answer, it is not possible for a person who is truly Christian, who professes Christ and believes that the Bible in its entirety is the inerrant word of God, to also profess or believe in or practice psychology. Now remember, you're hearing this from a guy who is licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board. The term Christian psychologist, which has been around since the mid-1970s, is an oxymoron. It is, in other words, internally inconsistent. And now, the explanation. Psychology is not a science. It is a pack of lies. You just heard that again from a guy who, since 1979, has held a license to practice psychology. In North Carolina, I was the 375th such person to be licensed in the state. I know what I'm talking about when I say psychology is not a science. It is an ideology. It is a worldview. It is a philosophy. It consists of a set of propositions concerning human nature that have never been proven. None of them. Furthermore, there are at least three major schools of psychological thought, and each of them holds to a different set of propositions concerning human nature. The three schools in question are the humanist school, the behavioral school, and the Freudian school. And they are not slightly different. They are radically different. This would be like there are three different schools of medicine, and and you just take your chances when you go to a doctor. All three of these schools of psychological theory were founded and originally described by people who are atheists. Abraham Maslow, the founder of humanistic psychology, actually felt that psychology offered salvation. He actually said that he believed that if the world was going to be saved, it would be done through psychology. Now, he's talking about a sort of secular salvation, mind you not salvation as we Christians think of it. He termed the state of secular salvation self-actualization. 
which meant the realization of one's human potential. Humanism denies that man is sinful. In the humanist view, a man is born good and is then corrupted by bad influence in his or her life, bad parenting mostly. Humanists believe that man is capable of perfecting himself through proper mental discipline. They believe man is the ultimate product of evolution. And most humanists view Jesus as a great teacher, at the very best, about whom much fanciful myth developed after he was executed for being a rabble-rouser. Humanists believe man is entitled to high self-esteem. The Bible says high self-esteem is a corruption, that humility and modesty are the ideals. I could go on and on, but I think I've proven definitively that there is no way to be a Christian humanist. So that eliminates one school of psychology. The second school of psychological thought, the behavioral school, was founded by B.F. Skinner. Like Maslow, Skinner was an atheist. He was what I would call an angry atheist. He was angry toward the very idea of God. And he thought people who believed in God were stupid. If they weren't stupid before they began believing in God, they became stupid as a result of believing as something as stupid, in Skinner's view, as an omnipotent master magician in the sky. B.F. Skinner believed human beings came about through the undirected process of evolution. He believed in Darwin, in other words. Skinner was, in fact, trying to prove Darwin's theory through psychological experimentation on humans. His fundamental proposition was that the same principles that govern the behavior of animals, like dogs and horses, also govern the behavior of human beings. That's Darwin. Listen to it again. His fundamental proposition was that the same principles that govern the behavior of animals also govern the behavior of human beings. And Skinner felt that if he could prove that link, he would prove Darwin's evolutionary theory. Well, the Bible clearly says that God created the entire universe, that he spoke it into existence, and that he created stars, planets, black holes, Mars, Earth, and then on the Earth, plants, animals, and human beings. Now, Skinner never proved what he set out to prove, and no psychologist has ever proven what Skinner set out to prove. What has been proven is that behavior modification does not work on human beings. Why? Because of free will, that's why. Free will means a human has the ability to deny that a consequence, no matter how punitive, has any relevance to his life. That is why... Toddlers and teenagers often say, in the face of punishment, I don't care what you do to me. If you're a parent, you've seen that defiance at work in your kids. Again, I could go on, but suffice to say, one cannot be a Christian behaviorist. So there go two schools of psychological thought. One left, and that's Freud. Sigmund, that is, the so-called father of modern psychology. Freud believed that belief in a supernatural, omnipotent, omniscient creator was a mental illness. In Freud's view, the Jesus of the New Testament was a megalomaniacal madman. Need I go on? No, I need not. One cannot be a Christian Freudian. So, if it's impossible to be a Christian humanist, a Christian behaviorist, or a Christian Freudianist, 
then it's impossible to be a Christian psychologist, period. There is no overlap between a Christian worldview and a psychological worldview. You are either a Christian or you are a psychologist, but the twain ain't never going to meet no matter how hard you try to get it to meet. In the final analysis, people who call themselves Christian psychologists are psychologists first and Christians second. They are, in effect, guilty of trying to serve two masters. So here's my recommendation. Stay away from people who call themselves Christian psychologists. If you're seeking help for personal issues, see a person who is a Christian counselor, but first make sure the person employs what is known as a newthetic approach to counseling. To simplify, that simply means the person employs biblical principles rather than psychological theory. Newthetic, that's N-O-U-T-H-E-T-I-C, counselors make no compromises with psychological theory. That's what you want. If you take one thing away from this, take this. The Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Psychological theory has yet to prove it contains any truths whatsoever. You can never lose if you go to the Bible. If you rely on psychology, you're eventually going to lose. Take it from a psychologist. This is John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. Our phone number is 404-419-6499. I'll be back in a moment with your calls. Welcome back to the show. John Rosemond, your host. The show is called Because I Said So, a title with multiple layers of meaning. I'll let you figure them out. Um, you can join us by calling 404. Oh, there I did it again. 404-419-6499. I'll say it again just in case it was confusing the first time. 404 419 uh, with your questions or comments. And we do have a caller on the line, Fred from Tarboro, North Carolina. Tarboro is fairly close to where I am, sitting atop the highest skyscraper in New Bern, North Carolina. Fred, how you doing, and how can I help you? Uh, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Well, good. Tell me how I can help you. Well, um, I don't have any children, but... You know, naturally, I was a child at one time, and I was brought up in a household that was do as I say, not as I do. And um, a long time ago, when I was a youngin', they didn't know anything about high-functioning autism spectrum disorders. And I have had to contend with that all my life until, as an adult, it was discovered. How old are you, Fred? Uh, 39. And when was it discovered that you have high-functioning autism disorder? About two years ago. And uh, don't tell me, please, the name of the person, but what are the person's credentials? Is he a psychologist, the person who diagnosed you? Is he a psychiatrist? Um, what, is, what is he? I, I was actually diagnosed at... Um, ECU's um, PASS clinic. Okay. Not trying to advertise for them. Eastern Carolina University? Yes. 
and you went to a clinic there, and they diagnosed you. Why did you go to the clinic? Because I had been having difficulties um, getting along with people all my life. Okay, were, were you referred to the clinic by someone? Yes. Who told you to go to the clinic? A therapist that I see on a regular basis. And the therapist is in is in your hometown of Tarboro, I assume. Uh, well, Rocky Mount. Rocky Mount, very close by. Okay, so the therapist in Rocky Mount referred you to this clinic at Eastern Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, which is just across the bridge from me here and a couple of miles down the road from there. And uh, this this person that you saw at the clinic or this team of people diagnosed you with High-functioning autism disorder. Autism spectrum disorder, formerly known as Asperger's syndrome. Asperger's syndrome, okay. All right. And uh, so what is your question, and how can I help you? Well, my question is, is, you know, there are so many parents in the world whose children um, most likely have this condition, and, you know, one of your shows I was listening to, um, you said that, that like, a child interrupting um, the parents when they're talking, you know, and, and uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm, let me rephrase this. For children with autism, the typical parenting solutions don't work. So... What do you suggest those parents do? Okay, first of all, Fred, I, I never said that. You must have been listening to somebody else's show, which is fine. And uh, But I never said that because I don't agree with that. I don't believe that. Um, the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder is not a valid diagnosis. Uh, neither is the diagnosis of high-functioning autism disorder. That is not valid either. A diagnosis is only valid once it has found its way into through a very torturous committee process that takes place within the American Psychiatric Association into what is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Now, Asperger's syndrome, I'm, I'm really not sure to tell you the truth, and I really should be. I'm going to have to bone up on this as a result of your call. But Asperger's syndrome may or may not be in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual at this point in time, the latest edition, which was published, I believe, last year. But Right, the DSM-5. The DSM-5, um, yeah. Yeah, and I was tested using the DSM-5 standards. Okay. With with tests called the uh, there was one of them was called the ADOS, and I can't not remember what the name of the other one. Yeah. Now the other important point that you've brought up, okay, irrespective of the fact that this diagnostic category, like all psychiatric diagnoses, is defined very subjectively. Okay. L let me use an, an uh, comparison here. Uh, Pneumonia is not defined subjectively. Cancer is not defined subjectively. High cholesterol is not defined subjectively. Those 
I'm referring to uh, those because they are valid medical conditions. A valid medical condition is always defined objectively in terms of criteria that can be measured and determined precisely. This is not true of any psychiatric disorder. All psychiatric disorders are defined subjectively and they lack criteria that can be measured precisely. Okay, now that's point number one. Point number two is that you have heard from someone somewhere that children who exhibit these characteristics, and by the way, I don't deny that there are children out there who exhibit the characteristics that define Asperger's or autism spectrum or whatever it may be, whether it's in the DSM-5 or not, I do not deny that there are children who exhibit these behavioral characteristics. What I deny is that anyone has yet found out, discovered for sure, that these are medical conditions, that these are conditions that are embedded in a person's biology and have to do with such things as what they call biochemical imbalances or brain differences or anything else of that sort. So that's point number one. Point number two, you said something very interesting, Fred, when you said that these children can't be parented like other children. And I take exception to that. Um, These children have to be parented the same way other children are. Why? Because they they are human beings. And the only way, there is only one way to parent a human being. There, there is one way that works, and it is according to biblical principle. It doesn't matter whether the person is six feet tall, the child is six feet tall, or four feet tall. It doesn't matter whether the child is male or female. It doesn't matter whether the child's skin is dark or light. Uh, if the person in question, the child in question, is a human being. There is only one way, I contend, to raise a human being. These people who are saying things like this are, whether wittingly or unwittingly, confusing the issue. They are making it seem as if these children are special cases and require very special upbringings and very special approaches to discipline. And what does that do? That causes the parent to become dependent for a long, long period of time on professional advice when it comes to the raising of the child in question. So, and, th- and, this, is, and, and, and this is one of my, uh, the bones that I have to pick with my profession is that instead of healing people, which would be measured by people no longer need your services, all too often people in my field, they do not heal. They cause people to become dependent upon them for long, long periods of time. Now, I have seen this work, and this being when an autistic child, a child who exhibits the characteristics that are listed in the DSM-5, as defining autism, when a child of this sort is parented in a very firm but loving way, and folks, that is a biblical 
childering principle, you love your children and you discipline them firmly. When these children are parented in that biblical way, they do okay. They do reasonably well. Now, they may not ever be completely, quote, normal, end quote, in terms of their affect, their behavior, their presentation, whatever you want to call it, but they do reasonably well. When you begin catering to their behavior, when you begin treating them as special cases, what is called the self-fulfilling prophecy kicks in. And the self-fulfilling prophecy is if you treat a person as though something about him is true, it becomes true. If you treat a person as if he is not intelligent, he begins to act like he's not intelligent. If you treat a person as if he is intelligent, he begins to act increasingly as if he is an intelligent human being. So here, you know, the the basic principle is this. These are human beings. They are not a separate species. These children that we are calling autistic or these children that we say have Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to emphasize I am not denying that the behaviors in question exist. I am simply denying that anyone, anyone out there in the world has ever proven that these are medical conditions. We don't know what they are. The behaviors are valid. We don't know anything beyond that point. What I'm saying is if you begin to treat them as separate species, they begin acting stranger than they are already acting. If you treat them as if they are human beings subject to the same biblical childering principles all other human children are subject to, they begin acting a whole lot better. And I've seen that time and time again. Fred, thanks for your call. It was it was very interesting and uh, very thought-provoking. John Roseman, the show is Because I Said So. Our call-in number is 404-419-6499. You can email your questions to radio at rosemond.com. That's radio at rosemond.com. Or if you would rather tweet, it's at John K. Rosemond. I am John Kirk Roseman. This is Because I Said So. Back with your calls after this. From American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now, once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. It's so much easier when the announcer uh, tells you who I am, and therefore I don't have to. That's just takes such a load off of me. The uh, call-in number, we'd love for you to join us, is 404-419-6499. Folks, a, uh, a few weeks ago, I went off on a semi-rant, uh, which is my predilection about discipline in America's public schools. And basically the the thrust of the rant was that uh, teachers' hands have been tied behind their backs. Discipline is in a state of shambles in America's public schools, which is why the largest growing 
school movement in America is homeschooling, which, by the way, I wholeheartedly support. Anyway, a former educator, retired educator, uh, who spent his whole life in America's public schools from northwest Alabama, I won't be any more specific than that, heard the show and was moved to want to comment on uh, what I had said. His name is Jerry Jerry, welcome to the show. I am so glad that you have called. I, I'm so interested in what you have to say because you were a guy who were, you know, you were there on the ground. And so uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, John. I uh, I was listening to your show about the politically correct discipline in public schools. And to give you a little background, I taught school in a small rural school for 30 years. I coached JV basketball and football. And in this school, and I know you'll get a lot of phone calls about this, but we had corporal punishment. If a young, if a young man, uh, and sometimes even young ladies, if they disobeyed the rules, they were sent to the office and they got a paddling, and it, it wasn't playtime. But when that discipline took place, I could deal with it in a heartbeat. That child was back in that desk and uh, on task. And and surprisingly, these children were not resentful uh, of me or the principal or any. Oh, it might be momentarily because, you know, the discipline is not the most pleasant thing in our lives, but uh, it, it works. It absolutely works. And I know I was teaching in a very unique situation because I knew every child. I knew where they lived. I knew their parents. I knew their grandparents. I knew where they went to church. And I I endeavored to establish a trust between me and those parents that if I disciplined their child, they could trust me that their child needed it. And many times I'd have fathers walk up to me and they'd say, and they'd call me coach and they'd say, coach, if you have any trouble, excuse this expression, but these are fathers. They would say, you tear that rear end up and you let me know and they'll get it tore up when they get home. And that was a type of environment. Now, these children did not grow up to be violent. And, uh, you know, it's always said that these children, uh, if you you spank a child, uh, that's the way they will retaliate and it'll instill violence. But these children grew up to be uh, good citizens, patriotic, loved America, and I look at them now, and many of them now are even grandparents and uh, very successful people. And uh, I see these young men and young ladies that I discipline sternly in school. They still talk to me, and in fact, many of them will call me to bury their loved ones since I'm in the ministry now. And they, uh, many of them have asked me to perform their wedding ceremony. Stern discipline works. Well, what a great compliment uh, to you and, and your career that these folks still turn to you uh, in times of need. And, uh, I mean, obviously they respect you. They have the greatest of respect for you, Jerry. And, you, you know, you, you're just making – you're making a lot of points here that uh, – that I'd like to comment on. Point number one, these children felt a sense of accountability in large part because 
the adult community was of one mind when it came to their upbringing. And you use the word trust. These parents trusted you and knew that when you disciplined their children, you were not going to step over some line and uh, gave you permission to do so and followed through at home. And it's this kind of coordinated effort between home and school that produces the best students and produces ultimately the best citizen. And that's what you're, that's what certainly you're describing. And how many years did you teach, Jerry? Oh, technically 29 and a half. So you basically saw two generations of kids come through your program. And so you've got plenty of evidence to the effect these kids paddled in school, paddled at home, uh, spanked in school, spanked at home, um, did not become axe murderers, killers. They're not in prison today. They're not in the big house. Uh, they're not uh, roaming the streets homeless. They're good citizens, patriotic, love America. The, as they say, the proof is in the pudding, and you've seen the proof. And here's, you know, now uh, what I want you to talk about for a moment is do you have any experience up close and personal witnessing the deterioration of discipline in America's public schools? Not at, because I'm retired. Uh, you know, I don't have any firsthand knowledge other than what teachers are telling me that are in the classroom. I retired in '03. Well, what teachers are telling you that are in the classroom, that's perfectly valid, and I want to hear it, and so do our listeners. So what are they telling you? Well, they talk about their hands being tied. They're not, they're not able to, uh, because they're, they're afraid of what it's going to look like in court. Teachers right now, in my opinion, are, are running scared. And I've always had the philosophy, don't give me a responsibility unless you give me the authority. Because if I can't make Johnny and Susie sit in that desk, get on task, listen to me, do their lessons, I cannot fulfill my responsibility to educate them. Well, you and are. teachers, uh, rightfully or wrongfully so, they're called to do so much more than educate now. And uh, I felt like, you know, I need to educate this child. I need to discipline this child. And it was so amazing when you do that, that child, whether they want to admit it or not, he cares about me. And and I would tell my kids, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I'd say, hey, look, if I didn't care about you, I'd let you do what you want to do. And I would tell my children and my students, I'd say, look, don't trust people that let you do anything you want to. Amen to that. And uh, those, those children responded to me. And uh, I'll, I'll see them at Walmart. And, uh, and now some of them are, have their grandkids with them now. And, uh, and, and we'll have a conversation there in the aisle at Walmart. And when they leave, I say, I'm, I'm glad you're still, you'll still talk to me. Jerry, these, <laughs> these teachers that you're talking to who are telling you that their hands are tied behind their backs, these are teachers who are teaching in the same school system you taught in up until 03, correct? Correct. Okay, so these teachers are referring to what has happened over the last 12 years. This is how how 
quickly this deterioration has taken place in a rural school system in Alabama. And if this is how quickly it's taken place in a rural school system in northwest Alabama, then, and I'm directing this to the listener, you can bet that this deterioration has been far more marked and far more severe in uh, suburban and urban school systems. Jerry is re- yeah. Jerry is referring to the the teachers, and I referred to it earlier, talking about their hands tied behind their backs. Most people do not know that uh, a number of years ago, about twenty years ago, and I don't have the reference right in front of me, but uh, you could probably find it online. The Supreme Court actually affirmed that. A child who was disciplined, and I'm going to give some arbitrary time demarcations here, a child who was disciplined in school in, say, October by being put into uh, suspension, in-school suspension, uh, being held out of recess or whatever horrible things they do these days, and who was then in March, that would be probably six months later, uh, diagnosed by a psychologist or a psychiatrist as having, let's say, oppositional defiant disorder, that the school system, even though the child had not received the diagnosis in October when he was disciplined, the school system could be held liable for the fact that they disciplined a child who under the Americans with Disabilities Act was in fact disabled and therefore the school could be held uh, financially liable for having disciplined the child. The dissenting voice of uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, who is kind of a swing, you know, justice, which means he has no principles whatsoever, he only has opinions, uh, said that uh, this was going to destroy discipline in America's public schools, and indeed it has. And this is why, and and the teachers that Jerry has spoken with give voice to this when they say they're afraid of being sued. And this is why I, I have often said that the primary role of a principal in America's public schools these days is to keep the lawyers from walking in the front doors with their, uh, their, their, their lawsuits. Uh, this is a terrible, terrible situation that's occurred. Jerry, uh, a final word from you. What uh, what advice would you have for teachers who are teaching today, young people who are going into the teaching profession? Well, it, I would walk in the classroom. I don't care if I was a 100-pound female teacher. I would walk in that classroom with a calling on my life to teach And I would walk in there and assert the authority that I have been given and entrusted with. Even though this may lead you into some degree of trouble. Jerry, what a great piece of advice. I'm sorry our time is up on this segment. Jerry, thanks so very much for calling. The show is Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman. If you want to join us, 404-419-6499. You can email your questions to radio at rosemond.com. Stay with us. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I'm John Roseman, your host for Because I Said So. A listener uh, recently sent me, and I encourage this, by the way, uh, sending me stuff that I can use on the air. A listener recently sent me an edition of a parenting column that appears in her local parenting magazine. You see these things in magazine racks. Uh, they're usually uh, free. The column is written, and I'm, I'm not going to give the parenting magazine its location or anything else. not important. It's just an example of, you know, the blah, blah, blah that comes out of the professional community and has been coming out of the professional community for more than 40 years concerning children. And, you know, my one of my themes is that child-rearing in America began to go south, as we say, in the south, when we began listening to professionals, people with capital letters after their name, tell us how to raise kids. When we were still listening to our children's grandparents tell us how to raise children, everything seemed to be going along pretty, pretty well, but we had to change something that uh, wasn't broken. But anyway, so this column in question in this local parenting magazine is written by two people who describe themselves as professional counselors. And in the column in question, the one that uh, the listener sent to me, the mom of a four, almost four-year-old child asked these very erudite individuals how to toilet train her child. Now, mind you, the child is almost four. Now, this is, you know, this would have been unthinkable, uh, inconceivable in 1950. One, when I was four years old, inconceivable that a child almost four years old would not have yet been completely toilet trained. This is not, folks, that unusual today. Take it from a guy who fields these sorts of questions a lot. The mother told these counselors that the child will not urinate in the toilet unless someone anticipates the need and takes him to the bathroom. In other words, says to him, you look like you need to use the bathroom, let's go. He will not go independently, and he adamantly refuses to do number two. I guess that's, you know, on family radio, number two is acceptable in the toilet. You could hear the desperation in the mother's voice as she pleaded, please help me toilet training before his fourth birthday. Here's the first sentence of the counselor's plural answer. We feel your pain, but you can kiss this fourth birthday dream goodbye. Can you believe that? We feel your pain, but you can kiss this fourth birthday dream goodbye. And then they began channeling for pediatrician T. Barry Brazelton, who threw a huge monkey wrench into toilet training in America by inventing, snatching out of whole cloth, a toilet training approach he calls child-centered toilet training. And um, he invented this back in the 1960s was able to, within about a 10 to 15-year period of time, convince the entire pediatric community in America that he knew what he was talking about. And so the entire pediatric community in America got behind this child-centered toilet training approach, which basically means 
that you don't put any pressure on a child to use the toilet. Now, by pressure, T. Barry Brazelton means you don't even suggest to him that he needs to use the toilet. You just kind of let him come to the conclusion by some mysterious osmotic mental process. And uh, what this has caused is children who are three and four years old who are not yet reliably using the toilet. And Brazelton, he was trained as a Freudian at Harvard's uh, Children's Hospital. Boston Children's Hospital, was a, which is attached at the hip to Harvard. And Brazelton made it seem as if you didn't follow his toilet training advice. Your child would grow up warped, hopelessly problem-ridden, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, you know, what you're supposed to do is let the child decide when he wants to begin using the toilet, sit him on the toilet, read to him, and just let it go from there. He'll do it when he and not you is ready. And above all else, remember that trying to toilet train a child before he or she is two years old can have the opposite effect. Now, I'm quoting again from the counselors who said, again, that was their words, the opposite effect of trying to toilet train a child before the age of two would be toilet training resistance and, you're, you know, I don't want to and I'm not going to, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, the toilet training havoc that professionals have caused in America is reflected on one of my websites, parentguru.com, where for every 10 parenting questions submitted by readers, three to four deal with toilet training. Now, we open this up to anybody who wants to ask a question concerning the raising of a child. 30 to 40% of the questions involve toilet training. Something that was not a problem for our great-grandmothers in the 1930s, 40s, 50s has suddenly become the biggest parenting hurdle of the preschool years. This is only now, this 40, 30 to 40% figure begun to taper off, given that more than 1,000 toilet training questions already answered or logged into the Q&A archives. And nearly every one of these questions is from a mom who has made the huge mistake, as well-intentioned as it might have been, of buying into postmodern potty propaganda and has failed to initiate toilet training before age two and has paid a terrible price as a consequence. Clearly, historically, we absolutely know that the, quote, season, end quote, check out Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, there's a time for everything and a season to every purpose under heaven. Clearly, we know from historical evidence the season for toilet training is between 18 and 24 months. This is an example of why I tell parents to be very, very wary of professional parenting advice. Yes, I am a professional. Yes, I give parenting advice. But folks like this, and this is why I can say this with credibility. I'm a guy with capital letters after his name. I'm telling you, beware of people with capital letters after their names when it comes to the raising of kids. These people, counselors, psychologists, clinical social workers, have tossed a huge, 
huge lead monkey wrench into toilet training, and an even bigger one into parenting in general. Your child wants to sleep with you? They say, oh, go ahead and let him. This will facilitate bonding. What, what? <laughs> like children never bonded before this advice to let your child sleep with you came out in the 1970s? Your seven-year-old is hitting you? Oh, he has deep-seated anger toward you. It's your job to find out why you're making him so angry and stop doing whatever it is you're doing. Your teenage daughter wants condoms so she can have safe sex with her boyfriend? Give them to her. You have no right to be judgmental. Besides, if a teen wants to have sex, nothing is going to stop him or her. Accept it. Relax. Have the phone number of your local abortionist on hand. I mean, folks, I hate to be so graphic about this, but this, this this is the kind of stuff that professionals are saying in America. This is what's causing the problem. Anyway, the truth is that toilet training season, as I said before, the time when it's going to be easiest for parent and child is between 15 and 20, 18 and 24 months, excuse me, slightly earlier generally for girls, maybe 15 to 24 months than for boys, 18 to 24 months. And like teaching a child anything else, you simply set the stage properly, provide the child clear direction and support and respond calmly but authoritatively to mistakes. You don't say when the child has a mistake, that's fine. It's okay. You say, I have told you to use the toilet. You are not allowed to use the floor. You are not allowed to wet your pants. You need to give the child a clear message, which you know flies in the face of professional advice. And believe me, this sort of an approach, which is no different than the approach that your great-grandmother used, is the approach to use. Your great-grandmother, folks, I'm talking about a person from the 1950s, Toilet trained her child in three to seven days. A lot of these women who are in their 90s today, when I run across them, I talk to them, I ask them, how did you toilet train your child? They don't remember. Now, don't misunderstand this. I'm talking about the ones who are still, you know, of sound mind. They remember details of their lives in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. They don't remember how they toilet train their children. Why? Because it was no big deal. When it became a big deal, it became a huge problem. Anyway, that wraps up another show. Our call-in number, if you want to be on the show with a question or comment, is 404-419-6499. Now, I'm going to tell you something. The fact of the matter is that I'm an active public speaker. I speak mostly in churches, and in most of those churches, not all, but most, most of those churches want me to speak on Sunday, which means that this program, which airs on Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock Central Time on the American Family Radio Network, is pre-recorded because, generally speaking, on Saturday, I'm on an airplane in a hotel room. So... When you call 404-419-6499, you get a recorded message inviting you to leave your name, phone number, a brief description of your question, and we will call you back and schedule a time to have you on the show. Be sure to join us next weekend. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network. 